0: Hi, I'm Sunny Dean,
1: And I'm Scott Drakeford.
0: And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very
1: different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival?
0: In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career.
1: Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more.
0: Welcome to this week's Publishing Radio, and I'm going to break from our usual intro format just a little bit to say that, you know, last week, or whenever it was, we broke the 100,000 downloads mark, which was really cool. And <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you Yay. to all the people who've listened and to all the people who <laughs> shared, and also our supporters who we've, like, never mentioned, because, because we never actually actively sought support for the, the podcast but it does kind of like almost pay for itself now which is very cool uh, it means we don't have to, to resort to starting an OnlyFans cool. for scott <laughs> <laughs> uh, with us today we have gail Carragher who has had a really interesting career through ya and other age categories and different genres and i think actually might be best if we let you introduce yourself gail and um, have I said your name right? Sorry. I'm suddenly panicked. It's like Jill. That's okay. It's
2: it's, it's funny. I, I chose a pen name that I thought would be easy to pronounce and then nobody pronounces it right. My real name is impossible to pronounce. So that's one of the reasons I have a pen name, but it's Kerriger with the hard G, but uh, you know, oh, it's a pen name, okay. so you can pronounce it however you want. I got this in the game. <laughs> yeah. So hi, I'm Gail Carragher. I was trad for a really long time and now I'm a pretty solid hybrid author and i I just celebrated my debut book's 14th birthday a couple of days ago, but I had a lot of contract negotiations first, so technically this is my 15th year of being a published author. So. yeah, people come to me for advice starting out and what it's like to be an author right now. And I was like, I can't help you because it's been over a decade, but you should listen <laughs> to this podcast. <laughs> because that's why I started listening is I was like, I can't give advice on a thing that hasn't happened mm-hmm. to me in a really long time. And then you started to give me PTSD because I was like, nothing has changed. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, it changes and it doesn't. Uh, So how did you get... We hear that a lot. uh, How did you get into publishing and what was kind of your experience with that first forays? So
2: I'm one of those writers who always wrote and I always wrote fiction, but I actually grew up in a kind of hippie commune sort of situation with a lot of poets. And so I thought, Hmm. well... We don't make money writing. That's not a valid career path. We're never going to do that. Uh, We'll just do this as a hobby. It'll just be fun, fun (laughs) time. My background is actually as an archaeologist, so I have an MA and an MS. I'm a materials analyst by training, which means I'm a social scientist. I have a lot of background in um, stats and research and... um, material science and that sort of thing, which I'm mentioning because my obsession with data and data analytics has really helped my career as an author. Um, my uh, delight in spreadsheets, for example, turned out to be a, a magic superpower for a writer. So that's where I, that's my background. I was um, most of the way through my PhD and pretty much a full-time academic adjunct faculty in teaching and stuff when my first book got picked up. And that's just because I wrote because I liked writing, and if I wrote and finished a thing, I might as well try to publish it, was kind of my attitude. I had a couple shorts published and things like that.
1: Talking about spreadsheets, you mentioned that spreadsheets have been a bit of a superpower for you as an author. What do you mean by that? You know, what have, what have you used your stats and spreadsheet acumen for in this my, world? My
2: magic power. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is something. So one of the things I'm very sort of thoughtful about uh, and careful about over the years has been my brand. Uh, mm. So I don't really publicly talk about teaching or the background of publishing. Like I don't. I don't have my own podcast like this one, I I only appear on other people's podcasts. So I actually had the reputation for years in that I, that I didn't teach, I didn't talk about craft of writing, all this sort of stuff, which I've slowly been changing over the last couple of years. But it's mostly because when I am on social media and online, I would like to interact with my readers, that's what my time is being spent for. not my fellow authors, much as I love you, Um, my job online is to promote my books and my brand and talk to my readers. So um, I've been very careful about not associating the two. So that's sort of the starter. So I, but I do love data and I have been collecting it from the get go. And I actually started um, a hybrid model just with some short stories way back in 2016. So I started to upload my own content rather than going through publishers specifically because. They obfuscated data, and I wanted to know things, mostly because I'm obsessed with efficiency, and I was like, if I am spending time online, or if I am being sent on a 10-city, 10-day book tour, I would like to know concretely whether that is effective or not. So (laughs) please, publisher, tell me, like, how many additional books did you sell off baseline because you, you like destroyed my health for two weeks right could we talk about that uh no it turns out with a publisher you cannot talk about that so i was like i need access to data um like your publisher tells me i must be on twitter yes but when i post about a book on twitter does that lead to clicks or clicks and conversions do i actually sell books or is it just a bunch of looky-loos on twitter so um the only way to find that information out is to is to upload the book and then track what's going on with it myself. And so that's, that's how I started. And so I have been collecting this sort of wealth of data on effective places online, on, you know, just tracking things via my web- website mostly since 2016 and I was front list already by that time so I have you know a good solid fan base and and I run experiments on them <laughs> constantly and they're usually like but like some the author guild or something will publish like data on book discoverability and where readers are going to get new books online and I'll be like that doesn't seem right like you asked a bunch of authors that question that's not useful. We should ask readers this question. This should be yeah. data that book Bob or goodreads or somebody is trying to figure out. Of course they're not. And I was like, well I'll just ask my readers. I have a reader group on Facebook with forty thousand members. Like I'll ask them yeah. <laughs> and see what survey data I get. Um and I will get just as many, you know, I'll get up to a thousand or two thousand people, which is, you know, pretty good. Our testament levels. Um so I do that kind of thing all the time. I just and if people want to talk about themselves, the survey is just people talking about themselves, readers. Readers love to tell you what they want to read next, what they're reading, da 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 da. So yeah. So I the so, answer is I have a big audience and I fleece them all the time and then oh i at the back end I'm also tracking everything. Because people will tell you one thing and actually do something else. So. Imagine if publishers did yeah, that. Yeah, so
1: so what uh, secrets can you share with us? Yeah.
2: <laughs> what kind of <laughs> secrets can I share? Well, I can tell you that way back in 2018, when I first started seriously tunneling to Twitter, I could have told you at that point in time that Twitter is not a place you sell books. It's yeah. a place writers hang out and talk about books. And it does yeah. get – and, you know, a writer a writer who is tracking will tell you, you get great clicks off of Twitter – and that is true. I get great clicks off of Twitter, but no sales or very few sales compared to some of the other mm-hmm. venues and marketplaces. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I had already what's called outposted Twitter. In other words, I didn't re- I don't really engage very much there. I don't hang out mm-hmm. there very much. Mm-hmm. In like late, early 2019, I was like, Twitter's not useful to me. I mean, and, you know, it can be fun to talk about stuff on Twitter, but it's not useful. So I had fled <laughs> already. Uh, so so where- when everybody else... I was like, yeah, it's Twitter's not good it's not a good doesn't doesn't matter it doesn't make a big difference. um, it's not what people are there for, Uh, so yeah, stuff like that uh you know i can I also will like combo data and triage data on like so somebody will make a recommendation on like an ads platform or something, and I'll go in and like I'll run some numbers and do some you know, quick ad testing of different tactics, like ad tactics like mm-hmm. a guru like Dawson or somebody will make a claim and I'll be like, I don't think that works for a trad author or like me, a, a wide hybrid author. It's like, you know, I have to charge a different price point than a lot of other indie authors partly because it's expectation of my brand. And so like some, a lot of their tactics don't work. So I'll run tests Mm. a lot on that, that kind of thing. Uh, For example, this doesn't apply to you guys who are purely trad, but there's a lot of chatter about whether you put a newsletter onboarding link at the beginning of your book, or at the end of your book, and which is more effective? And I was like, well, my ass will test that. <laughs> um, guess what? Equally effective, do both, everybody, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, so, so, so it basically allows me to like go tunnel in, change the metadata and test things that other people claim. And admittedly, I'm mostly testing them on me and my audience, but yeah. mostly that's the data I care about. But it is somewhat often somewhat applicable if you have a different, if you have a similar career path. To mine in terms of, you know, how you're how you're trying to reach an audience.
1: So that all that all makes sense. Are there and you mentioned things that don't work, and uh, uh, you know, Twitter and one thing that does. Are there are there channels though that you have found that initial exposure, uh, uh, or that ability to find initial exposure, and that have worked better for you? Um, and I, I realize that it's segmented by genre by by a whole yes. bunch of different factors but it'd still yes. be interesting to hear
2: discoverability is that what you're talking about discoverability yeah like places where new readers find you as opposed to existing readers
1: yeah whether whether it's you know uh, being more active on certain platforms or mm. running ads or uh, things that your your publisher has done and we'll, we'll get into that we have mm. we have a lot of questions about your uh, entire journey uh, but I'm just curious since we're on this topic if there are avenues mm. that have been fruitful.
2: So the the biggest thing I tested recently with my discoverability data poll which is and if anybody um incidentally out there would like to have access to this unfortunately it is IP guarded only for the US so you need to be US based for it. That's not me, that's WordPress's decision. But just drop me a calling card on my website it basically sends me an email and it's a it's a protected post but it is a post that's accessible to people. So if anybody's interested in the discoverability data stuff just let me know um, and I'll give you the code okay. word so you can read the post. It's just not public. Cause I don't want it to be scraped. And I don't, like I said, I don't yeah. want a ton of traffic to my website. That's this backend stuff. Um, but I am willing to share my data. And yeah, sure. that particular, that particular one, um, oh, sorry. Uh, I initially started it because there's this, this accepted thing, which is how do you find a new book? And I specifically, this was the question I specifically asked is like, I went to open places where you can't do multi poll options first and just had conversations with readers about this, including Twitter. And um, because I wanted to use the language that readers use when they talk about discovering things. So mm-hmm. I didn't, because we, a big mistake that a lot of authors make is in assuming that their readers are going to behave exactly like them. And that's just not true. That's one of the great lessons I've learned over the years is uh, my readers don't read like I do. They don't act like I do and they don't have the same language that I do because they're not writers. They're not in the industry. So they don't use words like audience or discovery data or discoverability. Like they just don't. don't. So I have to figure out how to ask them questions that they entirely understand. So I did a really open one first, which is um, if you're looking for a new author or a new book brand new to you, What do you do where do you go who do you ask Um, and then I just collected things that they said and then tried to formulate them into poll proper survey questions so the survey questions were a little long I also had a different objective than a lot of people Um, so like one of the things I did was divide libraries and bookstores up from each other they probably should be confined because essentially that's kind of a foot traffic Reader loyalty print loyalty situation. So it's often a very similar demographic. So the people who will say well I walk into my local bookstore and find a new book that way are pretty much the same people who say I'll go to the library and see what's on the recommendation shelf. It's kind of a shared thing But I divided them up because as a when I'm doing indie I can reach libraries But it's real hard for me to reach bookstores. So for me, it's important to have that so understand that I also have a personal objective when you're looking at this kind of data that I'm gathering Um, But essentially, I wanted to know if the old adage, I find a new book because a friend recommended it was true. Like, we've Mm -hmm. all accepted that for years, that that's the number one reason people buy a book is because a friend recommended it or a colleague or whatever. And I was like, is that true? Or is that just one of these publishing industry things, (laughs) though, like green book covers don't sell as well as other books, you know, (laughs) like publishing is full of these weird things. So I was like, I'm going to test it. Um, Yeah, it's true. Uh, The highest percentage by a landslide was a friend recommended it. Now, the definition of friend can include parasocial influencer friendships because I didn't ask people to distinguish what they mean by friend, whether it was an in-person friend or an online friend or like and how nuanced, right? And that's generational as well. Different Mm. generations think about what friend means differently if you come of age online or not so I didn't I didn't ask them to distinguish that uh, but they themselves chose to distinguish whether it was an author recommendation or not so um, to make this very useful for people listening recommendation by a friend was number one by a landslide then shockingly coming in just sort of after that was recommendations by an author so not a cover blur but an author actually and not a retweet of your launch post but an author actually on their social media or in their newsletter saying, oh my God, I read this new book and I loved it. So that's a really good tip. So if you have an author who you love and who agreed to blurb your book and actually really liked it, encouraging them to not just blurb it, but to actually talk about it in some concrete way um, is a really, does seem to be very powerful. So that was one big takeaway for me. And then um, a surprising number said, it, within bookstores and within the library for me i think that's because i come out of trad so i'm asking my own audience these questions but a lot of them do that a so shockingly high number said from from my perspective said the publishers of uh, social media feeds so if your publisher is like specifically tour is very popular it turns out um so, you know, those are the ones I can remember off the top of my head. I encourage anybody who's really interested in this just to drop me a quick
0: email and I'll send you the, um, I'll send you the, the blog post and the, yeah, back we'll, we'll, back heard, we'll post up a link towards it and the, in the kind of the show notes and stuff at the end. Um, but yeah, I was wondering actually if we could, before we get too much into the data, if we could go back into kind of how you did get picked up and what that story was like for you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we jumped. Yes. Scott got
2: excited. We jumped ahead. Um, So the story is solace and this is back in 2007 uh was one of when tor still had open subs among other things um it and it was a slush pile pick my my first my first published book so a publishing house that shall remain nameless of good reputation if not particularly substantial size uh picked up solace and fell in love with it and really wanted to publish it and i said that's great let me get an agent <laughs> so i went through the process of finding an agent which was interesting um uh, but it landed me with kristen nelson who is still my agent 15 years later who i love um, if you're gonna have one relationship for the whole time having a good agent is is optimal as far as i'm concerned um so uh, she went into negotiations with the first house that had interested. So essentially I went with an offer on the table. Uh, it was not a very good offer. It was like three grand or something like that, but I didn't really care that much because again, happily uh, archeologist and academic, like having a grand old time in my other career. Um, and so I was like, okay, go negotiate. And that negotiation turned out to be an absolute nightmare. Um, now I remember you guys talked mm. with a couple about this, but um, in my case it was the option clause which is sometimes called the exclusivity clause or whatever it is. But essentially I'm a full-time academic. This option clause is for anything I wrote under any name. That's way too broad and I literally was like I cannot sign that contract. I mm. will not sign that contract. Um and the editor was like but But we don't, I was like, I'm an academic. I will be publishing white papers. I have one on submission right now. Like I can't, you want my nonfiction, you cannot have my nonfiction. And the editor was like, well, we don't want it. You don't actually, I was like, it says in the contract, I have to give it to you. If you don't want it, exclude it in the contract. And they were like, nope, it's the boilerplate or nothing. And I was like, well, then I won't sign. Uh, And this took six months seven eight months like it took for this was just insane and my poor agent brand new agent is getting like screamed at by this editor literally um and, and Kristen's pretty like baseline nice lady midwesterner and she was like this is ridiculous and I'd be like oh if she's screaming at you she's probably gonna scream at me so let's I'm not married to Liz, and and eventually (laughs) my agent was like let's just see if anyone else is interested let's just see now you're not supposed to do this when you're in the middle of negotiations but i was like yeah let's just see and it turned out others were interested in this book and it's a weird funny little multi-genre book that probably would not get picked up now um But at the time, it kind of sat in a niche that was open, which is Mm -hmm. comedic sci-fi fantasy written by a female voice, like with a kind of feminist bent, Um, and uh, and historical, and a bunch of other weird things. It's steampunk, essentially. And um, yeah, and other houses were interested in it, and eventually we ended up just going with Orbit. Now orbit offered me a 25k deal which at the time is a very good deal i don't know what publishers would call it but it was a good deal um for two books and and that's one of orbit's i think it's still one of their standards is they tend to option for a two they like a a two book deal it's kind of one of their things and
0: still 25k um, as well
2: yeah Um, yeah, 25k (laughs) is not peanuts it's not it's not like like i always say it's also not an income right (laughs) like that's that's 25k minus my agent's cut minus da 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 da,
0: minus the tax what i mean yeah sorry what i mean is it's not gone up (laughs) yeah
2: yeah um Uh, But it was it was decent. But I'm telling you the the blank numbers Mm -hmm. because you guys have talked about this before. That tells you how much they're willing to risk on your what your advance tells you more than anything is how much they're going to spend on your marketing budget and what they're going to do with you and what they're going to be interested in doing with you. It told me and eventually I didn't realize this at the time, but my agent that they were going to spend something to try and get this. Try and get it some kind of traction. They weren't going to do the, you know, tour, throw the spaghetti at the wall for three grand policy. Um, They're going to do something with it. So um, they flew me out to BEA that year, the year of my debut. And a bunch of stuff happened at BEA. Tour had pulled out. Uh, This was the first year they weren't there, which meant the big rep for sci-fi fantasy was this void at BEA um and it had kind of been last minute-ish and so a lot of the attendees didn't really know that so that was the first thing that happened i had like begged and pleaded for solace to be released as a mass market paperback i don't know yeah. if that did much good uh, my pleading but that is what they released it as and um that was great because it had a low price point because briggs and butcher and this is carragher Briggs and Butcher had big releases in their urban fantasies, and I thought, you know, I'll sit next to them on the shelf, and I really want that market share, and someone's going in to buy those suckers at 30 bucks a pop because they're hardcover releases, maybe they'll spend another eight bucks on my little weird mass market, and that is exactly what ended up happening, (laughs) Um, but it meant that the arc was mass market, and Tor wasn't there. And a bunch of people in New York just, who are genre readers, just picked up this little mass market thing with a weird steampunk cover, what's the steampunk thing anyway, pocketed it and read it on public transport on the way home. So like, because there was no other genre really being released at VEA that year. And so it had this like weird little bubble of sensation and it just hit a bunch of, reviewers and librarians and industry folks within the market. It had a really unusual, very eye-catching mm-hmm. cover that would go on to like win awards and stuff like that. Now it looks really dated at the time. It was really unique. Um, and yeah, and, and that kind of jump-started it. Like the buzz started at that juncture. Um, and so people kind of knew about it by the time it was actually releasing into the world and it didn't have a strict on sale in SOS. So it kind of started, Dropping a little bit early. People started picking it up at Borders because Borders still exist in Barnes and Noble. Um, Jim, who was the buyer for BNN, loved the cover too. So did the Borders people. So they ordered kind of more than they normally would. Also, again, it's cheap. So, you know, most Borders had about 12 copies or something for a debut. Like a lot of weird serendipitous stuff happened with this book it's an october release there's no there was no major competition in the industry at the time except for these heavy hitters within series. and it just you know people picked it up
0: it, it it's really funny because you, so you mentioned oh sorry i was just going to say you know it's funny to me because we were talking about how trad has all these rules for things that that and aren't set in stone and one of them one of the rules it's always set in stone for sci-fi fantasy is steampunk doesn't sell (laughs) um i just find it funny to listen to the story of this the the steampunk book that could (laughs) so
2: yes it's the one uh i mean uh uh paula bachaglouby's wind-up girl and which is sort of steampunk dystopian and cherry priest's bone shaker and then there was a hmm. Levi in wakes Scott Westerfeld, hmm. so there were a couple that did pretty good. Yeah, so it did it did surprisingly well. It surprised everybody. Um, the other thing it did was really well in ebook. So it for Orbit, it was the top ebook seller, and also unusual percentage wise, and there was like 25% sales in ebook, which Orbit had n- never had before.
1: So. Uh, and we we talked to uh, you've listened to the show so we you know this but we talked to a lot of people about specifically what variables may have influenced you know that initial wave of of attention so you mentioned that orbit had made arcs and had them ready in time to send you to a a big industry uh convention that's what bea is right that's what i'm understanding is that it's it, Sorry, yes. Is it like a lot of booksellers and, and librarians and stuff that are there, people who are decision makers on buying, or who who's the primary attendant there?
2: It used to be the biggest, basically, book industry convention hmm. um, probably in the world. I think probably bigger than Frankfurt, I, I would like to say, having wow. been to both of them. Okay. It felt bigger. Um, but it was at the Javits. Um, I don't even, I think it's still going, but it's probably quite a bit died down now. Uh, but do it was massive you... and it was mostly publishers so mostly publishers and industry
1: so do you happen to know how many arcs they printed so and and I'm asking this for a, a particular reason I have a theory well it's not like a, a, a minimum viability
0: theory, but... of arcs kind of thing yeah, yeah.
2: I don't know um, I do know my first print run was 10k for Solus yeah. okay. um and I also can tell you <laughs> again, cause I read my royalty reports and I'm really clear about my numbers that back in the day for mass market for New York times, you had to sell 10 K in a week to get that yeah. list for mass market mm-hmm. adult listing. It's more than that for hardcover. And it was again, later cause I was released later in hardcover. So again, I always try to pay attention to what my print runs are and what my like sell through is in the first week when I hit a list. Uh, cause I'm like, how many, hackable, right? Like it isn't, but I was curious anyway. Um, but the print run does make a difference because you have to have a print run big enough to hit the list to start with. And it was for the first, for my, so my first five book series all came out in mass market. Um, and pretty much consistently for them. Cause every single one hit after that, it was about 10,000 in that first, uh, New York times window period, Tuesday to Tuesday. Um, And that's about what I could sell.
1: Yeah, just a fun comparison. My print run, my initial print run of hardcovers was also 10000 But I got none of the rest of it. None, right? So uh, I have this theory. And again, I'm sure it's not a very unique theory that there's two primary methods from what we've seen here on the show and heard on the show and just Mm -hmm. generally uh, have been able to hunt down. That you have to, like Sun, you said, you kind of have to hit some critical mass, and the best ways that people or publishers are doing that are one through massive exposure to consumers, right? And so that's things like uh, huge arc giveaways. Like we've we've heard stories of arc giveaways in tens of thousands, um, sneak peek giveaways in the hundreds of thousands, or even millions for these series or books that end up becoming very popular or more often it's effort put into what I would call um, leveraged distribution and pre-publication hype that uh, affects that leveraged distribution. And what I mean by leveraged distribution is exactly what you're describing is building hype with booksellers and industry people where for every one of them that you win over, you're selling probably you know in the ballpark of twenty to a hundred plus books every year, right? Um, so yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah,
2: I have to say I had the librarians in a big way. I got the ALA the Alex Award from the Librarian Market for Soulless. They were early big recognizers. They were also the bloggers. They were also at BEA. They were like prime category. They just happened to jump on and love this book in mass market but for libraries and this is why from an indie author perspective it's so hard to hack the lists is because that distribution is particularly tightly controlled that the distribution to the movers and shakers for lack of a better, i mean it's in the end it's all networking right it's networking for your author career like i can't tell you how many authors i know who found their agents at events like or because a different author told them to try their agent or gave them a personalized, like, I think your personalities would suit. I'll you to my agent. Sure. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of this is networking. One of the, you know, people, newbie authors will come up to me together and, uh, to, to talk, you know, early career. And I'll be like, I don't know how helpful my advice is because it's been so long. But I can tell you one thing, which is make author friends make author friends author friends now author friends as you progress through your career one of my favorite stories to tell is actually a wesley story um you interviewed wesley cheer a little while ago but i was at uh, world fantasy when barnes and noble barnes and noble had really pressed me to do a set to do 500 signed pre-ordered so people if people pre-ordered this third book from barnes noble online they could get a signed edition and so they, and they had missed the tipped in window. So they had to send me the physical boxes of books. It had been this like nightmare to organize. I had to go and sign 500 books in the space of an afternoon at a like weird hotel. Like it was all a nightmare. And, uh, and then they promptly lost them. And then they just sent out 500 emails saying your order has been canceled. Wow. <laughs> and like in the re- release day, like not before or they just release day. And so like I lost 500 sales. And so I'm at world fantasy when this happens, cause I'm on, I'm like midway through a book tour and, uh, and I just, and I'm hanging out and I'm drinking at the bar at world fantasy. And I am telling this to Peter Brett and Wesley Chu. And I just started bawling. Cause it's like, I don't know what can I do, you know? And, uh, and they just, like, did this, like, protective huddle around <laughs> me where they were, like, the like just freaking out. And they were just, like, so sweet and so kind. And Pete, who has had this kind of thing happen before, who's one of those friends who's like, a peer of mine, basically was like, here's what you do. You calm down, you get on the Internet tomorrow and you have a little window of time, and you email every single one of them back, and you say, when I get off my tour, If you want to send me your address, I will send you a signed sticker that you can put on a copy of the book and, and you, you are out the 35 cents for the stamp and it's going to take you quite a bit of time. You're going to have to sign, you know, 200, 300 again. Um, but that's what you do. And that's exactly what I did. And then it made it all better. And I got 250 emails of my fans who I would eventually pop on a newsletter, you know, little benefits, but yeah, it it and that was author friends. Like, so the moral of the
0: story is, yeah, is make author friends, you have no idea when you're going to need them, but you need them. No, I would very much agree. And I think even for me not being able to do traditional networking, I could still build online communities and found that very helpful. Um yes. I was just going to ask two quick questions. One for Scott, which is, Scott, why are your nails painted black? (laughs) And the the other one for Gail is, um, just very randomly, do you happen to know what a good pre-order number looks like on a book? (laughs) Uh,
2: A good pre-order number on a book? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Scott, (laughs) you answer first. Why are your nails black?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why wouldn't they be black? (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. They... (laughs) They look great, actually. Up close, they don't look that great. Uh, (laughs) My my eight year old uh, painted them for me, as she does every now and then. I have to make sure it's you know black or something somewhat acceptable and not princess sparkles or whatever. But um, yeah, so it's you know Halloween appropriate, (laughs) and I look fantastic. Thanks.
2: Sparkles are appropriate to everybody. Everybody should wear sparkles. Uncover
1: your inner sparkle, Scott. Hey, okay. I, yeah, I mean, the, no no shade to anybody that has princess sparkle uh, fingernails. <laughs> Whatever you want to do is great. A couple I, years ago, you know, my partner
0: just... dyed his beard like glittery green for Christmas. So, you know. Love it.
1: <laughs> it's mostly the glitter that I don't like. I I just really don't like the texture on my nails. Okay. I don't like um... it when it's falling off on stuff, you know, so...
2: You could do the sheeny oil slick, like, you know, gunmetal or something. Metallic. I mean,
1: that'd be cool. Um, yeah, that'd be cool, I guess. Yeah, that'd
2: be cool. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, what were we... Pre-orders. Oh, Pre-orders. I, what... <laughs> yes, I can tell you now, like, with my fan base, what a pre-order number is and kind of what it gets me at the back end in terms of, like, as an indie publisher, because that's what I have the data on. Um, And that the answer to that is it's probably something in the order of about 250 at least. And this is just to hit, you know, number one, at least a couple of categories on Amazon, which I I question whether that's actually useful or not. Um, And to have a, you know, sort of significant sell through in order to like hit a bunch of algorithms on some of the other platforms and stuff. So it's about 250 pre-orders on Amazon, um, which works out to about, you know, 40 to 50 on all of the other platforms. Um, and then now these days for me, I get about 200 or so pre-orders on direct sales as well. I've, I've uh, off-boarded a lot to direct sales, just, you know, again, direct access no, to data fine, no. and uh, direct access to my fans. That is helpful um, actually.
0: Cause, and the- sorry, I was just going to say, because oh, a lot of people have asked me in private, like other debut authors, like, oh, I've got pre-orders. What do they mean? What's a good number? And nobody really knows. And I think a couple of people that I was talking to, you know, they'll get upset at like, I've only got one hundred and fifty or two hundred, and I was kind of thinking for a debut. Well, that's, that's good. really good. Like, <laughs> that's
2: very good, yeah, yeah, that's very good. yeah, I would say good over hundred, especially mm. for a debut because it just means it just it's just telling you that you're getting the word out to people. And there's a real trust model involved when you're debuting in particular, mm. and especially if you're debuting in Trad because the price point's so high. And so, um, yeah, those pre those order numbers are excellent because it, a lot of readers, and I get this, you know, they're just not going to take a risk on a newer author. like a very don't. expensive book. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm. They're definitely not going to pre order. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Like, I wait until there's at least a sample I can read mm. first or it's in the library and I can, like, check check it like I just Mm -hmm. I mean partly that's because as a writer I'm pretty invested in kind of the flavor and style of the author's voice and there are some author voices that just really turn turn me off and I'm just not gonna bother um so yeah uh I think people just dream big yeah they do you you do that's true um but yeah lower your expectations everybody (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah and very quick um one of the things that you mentioned on your, your list to talk about that I was kind of interested in was selling the film rights and your tight options and what that story was involved and in was about. Yeah. yeah so specific- really
2: you talked to, talk to people who had what sounded like wide options and stuff. And then, you, you, Scott, are you going to mention the turning down the deal?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's specifically yeah. what I want to hear about is the, that note you have on there. So go for it.
2: Essentially, when they option your book, they're optioning the rights to the world and the characters, not really the story. This confuses people a lot, which is why when your favorite book gets optioned, you can't expect it to be exactly like the, what was written most of the time. So, during, again, back in 2012, when Steampunk was on its heyday, this is the story Scott wants, uh, Sony approached to option the Finishing School series. And uh, it was a million dollar offer. And because uh, the finishing school series had hit New York Times twice already in hardcover. They were doing really well. That is the series that I got a six figure advance for. So, you know, they were throwing a ton of guns behind it. It was the heyday of steampunk. Everybody was excited by this new movement, the beauty of it, everything, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and so we were negotiating and I was like, well, for a million dollars, I'll be a little less <laughs> a little bit more relaxed. But the previous series was already under options, so we had to have some negotiations anyway. And then um, it came to character. We were talking about some of the characters, and they, now again, this is before Me Too, this is before um, Black Lives Matter, but my main love interest in the Finishing School series is black, and they wanted to whitewash that character. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, (laughs) I was like, okay. Uh, no, and they were like, "Well, you know, we won't." I was like, "No, no now you've said that. Like, you got to put it in that. Yeah, like it needs to be written down that you're not gonna whitewash my characters. Also, don't queerwash my characters. <laughs> like, or straightwash them." I was like, "I have a lot of queer characters. You can't do that either." Um, and they were like, "No, author, you cannot tell us what to do for a million dollars." And I was like, "Okay, then I don't need a million dollars." So yeah, I totally walked. I completely walked away from the deal because I was like. I don't, I don't, you know, it wasn't, I am not one of those authors who like dreams of having my stuff adapted. Uh, it's never been something that particularly interests me. I'm not a big film buff or anything like that,
0: but also like, I don't need a million dollars. That's fine. Yeah. And I wonder, cause I, I'm conscious of time and not keeping everyone too long, but there was a certain publishing experience we kind of talked about before, at the start, before we got going. And I wondered if you had kind of the time and headspace to go into that a little bit. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did. I did allude to this a little bit, but essentially because of the option clause situation where the um, the first publisher that had found me out of slush, who like loved my book, the editor was just ecstatic, was so excited. They were not offering me and they were offering me like three, three or four grand, but they were a prestige house that I was very familiar with because I would read many of their authors were quite beloved She called me, I was at a coffee shop writing or working on correcting papers or something. And uh, like, I saw the 212 New York number on my phone and I was like, what? And it was like, hi, this is so-and-so. I'm the editor at blah, blah, blah. And I love your book and I really want to publish it. And I think I spat latte foam and like then ran out the back of the cafe and quietly had hysterics for a while. Um, So it was very exciting um like it is the dream right like that's the actual dream and then um this is where i always say never say yes always say let me contact my agent even if you don't have one uh cuz i said yes and that caused a lot of problems um although you know this isn't the uk um, a man's word is not his bond <laughs> but um mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then I then I reached out to a couple of agents. I asked the publisher if they had an agent they really liked and they recommended one that they had worked with for various authors. So I approached him and then I approached Kristen, who had rejected me for a previous YA series. But she'd done it so nicely and with so much thought that I was like, hmm, I really like her. I also really liked uh, her kind of business model. Like she wasn't New York based. And I knew that Mm -hmm. she'd broken from a um, to start up her own. She was relatively new. She was relatively young. She was relatively hungry. I knew she had no kids. I was later to learn that she is a workaholic. You want that in an agent. (laughs) It's very good. Um, No distractions from my agent. Thank you very much. Um, So I approached (laughs) those two agents and one of them who shall remain nameless uh, Passed me along to his assistant, and pretty was pretty dismissive. Um, And Kristen got back to me within like 24 hours, and was like, "Yeah, it looks great. I love it. You have an offer on the table. Let's do this." Um, So that was the agent sorted. And then um, then we had this like crazy contract negotiation over the option clause, which just went on forever with this particular editor that had praised me and continued to do so to my face on the phone, um, just like becoming more and more of a heroine to my my now newly hired and beloved agent um over specifically the option clause and eventually i I was the one well mutually my agent and i were just like this is totally ridiculous and i'm like i mean this is like end of term like this has been drawn out over the holidays and into spring and i like i'm correcting term papers and i'm working on my thesis and i'm just like Try someone else. <laughs> like, this is too ridiculous for this little game of a hobby with this playful, silly book I wrote. Like, yeah, do something else. Like, yeah. again, I was just like, agent, what do you think? But try
0: something else. And we tried different publisher. It, and it's That's interesting because, um, oh, I mean, obviously we won't name them on air, but like, I, I do know this publisher and specifically the editor and, very recently within like the last two years I've had an author friend who kind of went on submission to them and um, when things started not working out between them that behaviour was exactly the same. The the editor was screaming at my friend's agent at my friend's agency there was a lot of vitriol and and just like unprofessional behaviour and it did end with the author cancelling that contract and walking away because Because they just couldn't be bothered to deal with it anymore. And they found the book a different home. So it's sad, but not surprising, I guess, to hear that that behavior is the same even across the gap of years from the same place and same people. Um, Which is not Tor, just just throwing that out there. (laughs) No, you're fine. Um, Yeah, sorry. I I feel like we've been a bit all over the place. I might might move bits of the conversation around later. But I was going to say... Uh, Unless you've got further questions, Scott, I was going to ask if you felt like plugging yourself, Gail, and just telling people where they could find you and definitely... um... Yeah, there were, I mean, there were a couple of things. Like,
2: I I did want to mention in case this comes up and you need to point people this direction that I have also been in the position of having to buy myself out of a contract uh, yeah. <laughs> so um I, I i know you mentioned at one point that you'd never oh my god please stop <laughs> it's all right <laughs> I'm so i do sorry, want to hear but... about that
1: if you yeah, yeah, if you've yeah got go to it. tell that
2: so i was actually approached by a an editor to write a ya series um and they preempted the offer with a six-figure deal for a four book series um, but I also pitched the follow-up spin-off series for my first uh, five-book series to orbit. So now the preempt had gone to Little Brown, which is also a Hachette house. So essentially I had two book deals on the table. One for this four-book YA series, which I had already started writing. I was already like a couple of books in on that one, and then this new spin-off for the of the Solace series called the Custer Protocol series. And I thought I could write one book and then another book and one book and then another book and book. And it turns out I cannot do that. (laughs) Like I can't do that with series especially series that are kind of in the same universe. The main characters voices just started getting really muddled in my head. um, And it was, it was just, I was like, this is not going to work. I tried to do the first book in the new adult series and it didn't work. And I had to turn around to orbit um, and just be like, I don't know how you want to handle this, but you have two options. I can buy back my advance. The advance was for a two book deal. That's always what Orbit does. I was like, I can buy back on a two book deal. Um, Or uh, you can hold for two years while I have time to finish, finish this four book series. Um, And there was a, you know, a good couple of months there where my agent was like, I've never had to do a renegotiation like, you know, and I was like, I can pay back the advance. Like I just, you know, stuck in a savings account. I don't like, I don't know how this works either, but like, I'm prepared to do this. Um, And and we really did think we were gonna have to do it. And we were really going into those negotiations. And, and then eventually Orbit was just like, we'll wait, we'll, we'll just hold it and wait. So it did work out okay, but I did start that negotiation. So I do know that it's possible, but yes, you do have, to, that's the one instance where you would have to pay back your advance, yeah. So, and I'm the only one I know who's ever like been put in that situation before. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, it makes sense. I, I think, you know, were you to cancel a contract, that's what they have, what they stand to lose. Yep.
2: Yeah. And then that, that last series was a nightmare series. That was a series where everything that they'd done right with my first series they did wrong with that last series. They released it in hardcover. They charged too much for the ebook. They didn't roll out quickly enough. They didn't do arcs. You know, it was just, yeah, it was pretty much, I got orphaned uh, badly uh, twice. You know, I ended up with an editor who did not, was not interested in
0: my books, didn't like them. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, wait,
1: I know this story, yeah
0: And can you see that difference in your sales? Oh yeah, yeah, it was remarkable and it's, and it's, and I will often
2: say, like, I'm sorry to break your bubble, authors out there but like, even when you make it and you do good, and you give them everything you that they want, and you're a frontlist. They are, they will still hand you out to dry. You know? In fact, yeah. sometimes they're almost more likely to, because they expect you perf- to perform without their help. And uh, and yeah, I mean, to mm-hmm. cap that story, I went on recently to write a series, um, which is non-commercial. It's not a genre that sells very well. Which frankly was what Solus was way back in the day. Um, and it went back out on sub. So I was out on sub recently as a front lister, as like 13 New York Times, right? And uh, 57 rejections later, uh, just goes to show that like everyone gets rejected. Everyone will get dropped. Like, yeah, it, it can happen. It can happen. I don't mean to be a downer, but
0: no, no, all no, it's the fine. good <laughs> can happen and all the bad can happen. Yeah, it is very, very fickle. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yep. That was fantastic.
0: I th- I think so. Uh yeah, now I really will, if that's okay. I ask you if you want to plug yourself. Where can people find you and your books and your blogs and things? Sure. And I'll get a list of links um, off you at the end. <laughs> so.
2: so this is the point where I say um, I really am on social media to interact with my readers um, because yes. they're multitudes and they take a lot of time and attention. I do adore them. Um, so if you follow me on the social medias, you will hear about my fiction. Um, if you are interested in Nonfiction, and I do have a like a kind of a massive nonfiction project coming up. Um, but and in the craft of stuff that is almost exclusively on my blog. So go to Gail Carriger, and I have a resources tab on my blog, and under that tab are two sections. One is for new authors, and one is for established authors, and it is going to be both stuff I've written, just all sorts of things from like how cover art works to other things like that but also links to good podcasts and stuff that other people have written. So I like to help as much as I can. That's the way I've figured out how to help newbies in particular. Um, during NaNoWriMo month of November, I do take over all of my social medias with write stuff where I will talk about being a writer and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So go to my blog is probably the best resource that I have. The nonfiction project I have coming up is called going hybrid and it is how to move from traditional publishing to self publishing without going crazy. Um, and it will have checklists cool. and worksheets and all the things. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, if you are one of those authors who is thinking about that as a possible career pivot, um, the book is coming. I promise <laughs> it's, it's really coming. Um, cause I've been pretty successful doing that. I make uh, as oh, much wow. now as I did when I was a New York times bestseller and, um, uh,
1: no way. And
2: eighty percent of my income is self published. So I made yeah. And I did that in five years. That's how long it took me to, to make that transition. Well, it took three years to do the complete pivot. Um, but I gave myself five years to make that transition. So it mm. is possible. You can do it. It can be done. Um yeah. So yeah, no, find me on the website. So much. <laughs> yeah. And if you if you do want access to any of the back end like okay. data kind of stuff. Um, just again my website has a Perfect. has a little contact page you just drop me a calling card
0: it'll no, be that's great. Thank.
2: <laughs> maybe a little while I'll be in Thailand for a month so I'm going to be okay. a little slow to respond but I promise I'll get back at you
0: that's okay I'm, I'm always slow to respond these days and uh, yeah thank you very much and especially thank you to both of you because my I'm just so spaced out I had like a two hour zoom call earlier and now I'm just like <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's been really good um, and thank you again so much and yeah uh I'm really distracted by your nails, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I hope you have a good Oh, do that one more time. Do that one more time.
1: <laughs> well, Gail, it was wonderful <laughs> chatting Perfect. with you. I learned uh, you. uh a lot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. And thanks for um yeah. yeah, thanks for allowing me to press you into having me on. Um yeah, and and I'm I'm glad to To talk about anything, glad to help anytime.
0: Um, Sometime in person, I'll get more stories out of you. But yeah, oh, in the meantime, (laughs) that is the rule. Is I do do quite a number
2: of conventions, and (laughs) if you buy me a drink at a convention, I will tell you anything you want to know, and then deny it online later. (laughs) So (laughs) a real secret.
0: (laughs) World Con it is, right? You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sonia Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.